Have you ever had one of those times when you are busy, you're in a hurry, you're trying to get to work, or you're trying to get to school, or you're trying to get somewhere, and you're trying to get there on time. And just before you get there, you forget that you have left something, or something that is undone. Are you one who would turn around and go back, or do you decide that you're going to be where you're supposed to be? Uh, Sometimes we get ourselves in these situations. Sometimes it is uh, worrying about uh, the, the oven that was left on. Anybody ever worried about that? Or you're just about where you need to be and you realize you left the iron on. Uh, or the coffee maker. Sometimes you, you get to where you're going and you forget and you think, well, did I turn it off or did I turn it on? Do I really want to return home to a burnt coffee smell or uh, my house on fire or whatever else it may be? Maybe you felt like you left the dog outside or you left the dog inside. Maybe you felt like uh, you, you left the garage door open. Um, and sometimes uh, that happens as well. You come home and you realize somebody broke in my house. I left the garage door open when all along it was you that left the garage door open. But the question I have for you this morning is what would you be willing to go back for? Out of all those things, what would you be willing to drop whatever it is you're doing, go back to where you need to be, and take care of it so that you can get back to doing the things that you're supposed to do for the rest of the day? Well, Jesus gives us something that is worth going back for. And we find that here in this gospel reading, in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is continuing. And we've been looking at this the last couple of weeks where Jesus has his disciples around him and uh, the the people of his religion are, are all around him within earshot of what he is talking about. And these words would be captured by Matthew and shared with his church and the people that he wanted to hear this uh, for years and years. And we continue to hear them today. But as we hear them, we hear several things that apply to our lives right where we are today. Uh, they come to us and, and, and touch us in very relevant ways. And one of those ways is one of these things that Jesus says is worth dropping whatever it is that you're doing and giving your priority to, that you would do whatever you have to do to make sure this one thing is fixed. And we find that that one thing is something we know all too well, uh, something that we are very familiar with. And I want to read this scripture to you, and I think I have it here on the screen, uh, as Jesus says, so when you are offering your gift at the altar, He's talking about when you go to the temple and you're going to make a burnt sacrifice or whatever sacrifice you have to make, when you go there to make the offering, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. First, Be reconciled, Jesus says, to your brother or sister. Right when you get to that most important thing that you are about to do in the temple, Jesus says, when you remember, oh, I forgot something, or it just dawned on me that there is someone out there that has something against me. And Jesus doesn't get real specific. He doesn't say something you've done to someone else or something that they've done to you. He just leaves it open, doesn't he? It's it's really pretty vague. But he says, when you realize that there is something that needs to be mended, go and take care of that. 
First, Jesus says, be reconciled to your brother and sister. What is reconciliation? If it is this thing that we are to just drop whatever we're doing and give our attention to, what is reconciliation? Well, the Collins Dictionary defines it as to make oneself or another no longer opposed or to become friendly with someone after estrangement or to reestablish friendly relations between two or more people. If you look at the actual literal uh, construction of the word, uh, the re part means to go back. It is you're doing something again or you're going back to something. And the conciliation part is to bring together. So if you just look at it literally, it is to go back and to bring together something. And Jesus says, when you look at your relationships, it means that you go back to something that needs to be put back together. That you are willing to mend something that has been torn apart for whatever reason, whether it's your fault or someone else's fault, that you take your time to go back and to bring these two things together. And what Jesus would teach about reconciliation, not only here in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we will not have time over the next several weeks to look at all of what Jesus says about relationships. But certainly, in the text that we just heard this morning, uh, we looked at what does it mean to do this between uh, a husband and a wife? Uh, what does it mean to do this between uh, a brother and a sister? Uh, with someone who is taking you to court? What kind of uh, mending needs to happen in that relationship? What does it look like when you are trying to make an oath uh, and the relationship that you have between yourself and your society, all of these kinds of relationships or these covenants, Jesus says it is important to understand what reconciliation is all about. And to sum it up, I would say that the first thing Jesus teaches about it is that worship is connected to ethics. Reconciliation is all about how worship, the worship of God, is connected with your treatment of other people. And the word Jesus has already used here in the sermon is righteousness. And we looked at that. And what does that mean? It means doing the right thing for other people. It's being in a right relationship with God and being in a, a right relationship with other people. That is how we are righteous. And so reconciliation means that worship, our worship of God, is connected. There is no separation there between your treatment of other people, and your relationship with God. Love for God is inseparable from love for neighbor. That's why Jesus says the most important thing you can do to the rich young ruler you know, that comes to him and says, you know, tell me, what's the most important thing I can do? Jesus says, love God, love neighbor. Amen. It was a really short response, wasn't it? It's as simple as that. Love God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And the, the rich young ruler would go, yeah, check that one off. I've done that. That's something I can do. I've devoted my whole life to loving God with every fiber of my being. And Jesus says, yeah, but love your neighbor too. And not just your neighbor, but love your enemies. Love the people that are so unlovable around you. That is what it is all about, Jesus says. And so love for God means that we will be in reconciliation with other people. And there is no separation there either. And so Jesus says that it was vital for them. Reconciliation was a vital part of their spirituality and of living 
in the kingdom of heaven. I read a, a quote this past week from uh, a Mennonite leader, uh, Irvin Stutzman, and I like the way that he puts this. He says, Jesus knew that true worship has a way of bringing broken relationships to mind. Like sunbeams on the forest floor, God's Spirit can light on the anger and resentments hidden in the shadows of our lives. Isn't that true? When we come to worship, when we get in a place where we can can be in, in, in a place of reverence before God, when we can listen to what God has to say to us, whether it's through a hymn or through a scripture or through someone sitting next to us on the pew, we find that like sunbeams on the forest floor, God's Spirit can light on the anger and resentments that are hidden in the shadows of our lives. And I would say when we get to a point when that doesn't happen in our lives, then our hearts have become so hardened that we miss what God wants us to understand. If you have come into this place full of hatred or resentment or anger for someone else, then you are not opening yourself to the Spirit of God. And so God would have us to go and reconcile. Oswald Chambers has a great devotional on reconciliation on this particular passage. He says, Never object to the intense sensitivity of the Spirit of God in you when He is instructing you down to the smallest detail. He says, don't object to it. When God's Spirit is tapping you on the shoulder, when God's Spirit is convicting you or saying something to you, our Lord's directive is simple. First, be reconciled. He says, in effect, go back. There's that go back. Go back the way you came. The way indicated to you by the conviction given to you at the altar. Have an attitude in your mind and soul toward the person who has something against you that makes reconciliation as natural as breathing. Jesus does not mention the other person. He says, for you to go. Don't we sometimes say, yeah, but God, she did this to me or he did this to me. And so I'm going to wait for them to come to me. And Jesus says, that's not the way it works. He says, go for you to go. And I think this word that comes from Jesus about reconciliation fits directly with what he says about the, the peacemakers. We, we heard that a few weeks ago, right? Blessed are the peacemakers or you are blessed when you are a peacemaker. And so Jesus further elaborates on what that means. I'm sure they were still wondering what I'm supposed to be a peacemaker in the hostility of, of what's going on in our nation. As the Roman soldiers continue to degrade us, they oppress us, they steal from us, they spit on us, they crucify us, they do all these things around us. And you're asking me to go and be a peacemaker? And even beyond that, you're saying that I'll be blessed if I'm a peacemaker? No, I'll be tortured to death. I'll be killed if I go and do such things. And so Jesus picks up on that and elaborates on that. And he says, you will be blessed when you are a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. Paul picks up on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says that we have been reconciled to God. And he says we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. 
And what that means is that all of us are called into the ministry, aren't we? All of us are called to be ambassadors for Christ. We are called to live in reconciliation with God. And we do that through Jesus. And then we are to go and reconcile other people. Paul says, here's what you're to say to other people. Be reconciled to God. But it goes beyond that as well. It means to be reconciled with each other. And Paul would write to a, a very fractured church. A church that uh, they, they were really having words with each other. They were divided on several different issues. And Paul says, reconciliation is the key here. Don't forget that you have been reconciled and you are called to reconcile others. Well, how in the world are we supposed to do that? It's not easy, is it? How do we reconcile with other people, especially people who've been really ugly to us, people who have hurt us, or maybe people that we have hurt, maybe those that we've been ugly to? How do we do that? How do we take the steps? Well, ignoring it certainly won't solve the problem, will it? Our wounds tend to fester. Problems develop. But I would say first, realize the connection between love for God and love for neighbor. Just as Jesus told that to the disciples, I believe He wants us to understand that as well. To realize the connection between love for God and love for your neighbor. Do you really love God? Do you really seek to love God with all fiber of your being? If you do, then you will love your neighbor in the same way. You will love your neighbor who is the person who lives in your house. You will love your neighbor uh, who is next door to you. You'll love the neighbor down the street. You'll love your neighbor here in the city or in the state. You'll love your neighbor around the world. You will seek to love others just as you have found that God loves you. And I think that leads to the second thing, and that is to understand forgiveness. People who don't forgive other people really don't understand how God forgives them, right? If you are having trouble forgiving someone else, even if they've never asked for your forgiveness, if they don't care at all whether you forgive them or not, they don't care at all if you ever speak to them again, it doesn't matter. Because God says, forgive them. And if you can't forgive them, perhaps you don't truly understand how God has forgiven you. Jesus talks a lot about this, that how, how can you expect God to forgive you if you haven't forgiven your brother or sister? And it causes us to stop, doesn't it? And wonder to say, maybe I don't really understand. I mean, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I have done wrong to other people. I know that I have done wrong to God before. And yet God has forgiven me. God has embraced me with, with God's grace that I could never begin to fully understand. But I can accept it. It's like Jesus as He talks to, uh, He tells the parable about uh, the debtors. And he, he talks about a, um, a guy, a boss, who calls one of his employees in. And, um, and he says, look, you, you uh, owe me all this money. I, you know, I've given you this responsibility. I've, I've called you to be a steward. And you've blown every bit of it. And, and, and you're, you're going to have to pay it all back. And uh, the guy begs for forgiveness. And so you know, he says, okay, I'm going to give you some grace here. And what does the guy do? Is he's, and I'm paraphrasing this a good bit. 
as he goes out the door, he sees another guy that owes him money. And he says, hey, you better pay back every cent that you owe me. And the guy says, I don't have any money. I can't do that. And so uh, he goes after that guy with no sense of grace or mercy that was just extended to him. And Jesus teaches in this parable that how can you not understand God's forgiveness if you cannot forgive someone else? Just as God has shown you grace, you are to go and share others that same forgiveness. Forgiveness is difficult. By the way, forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Forgiveness is a step toward reconciliation, but it is not the same. Jesus also says, take the initiative. Go, He says. And so that is a third step of reconciliation. We need to take the initiative. Jesus doesn't say, well, maybe the other person will come around. He says, you go do it. And, and there's a sense of urgency that's here. As He talks about this, if, if your neighbor is going to take you to court, you should take the initiative to go and try to work it out before you get to court because if you get to court, chances are the judge is going to throw the book at you and you're going to have to pay back every single penny. You're going to be in jail until you pay back every penny of that debt. But if you'd gone ahead of time, maybe you could have headed this off. Take the initiative, Jesus says. Or if someone comes to you and, and demands, he's talking about a Roman soldier, he says if they demand your coat, just take all your clothes off and give them to them. Take the initiative to get ahead of this and to allow God to work. Give space for God to work in the midst of all of this. A fourth step of reconciliation is to accept the risk. There's risk involved in this, isn't there? You might be saying, well, but if I go and I try to reconcile with this person, this is going to happen and this is, it's not going to go well for me. But it means to accept the risk. Miroslav Volf, who uh, has a lot to say about forgiveness, uh, grew up in, in the Bosnian conflict and all the things that were going on over there, and he saw some horrible things happen in his country. And he writes uh, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, some of the most powerful applications of this call that Jesus gives to reconcile. He writes about it. He says, there is a risk of embracing someone who is an enemy. I open my arms. I make a movement of the self toward the other, the enemy, and do not know whether I will be misunderstood, despised, even violated, or whether my action will be appreciated, supported, and reciprocated. I can become a savior or a victim. Possibly both. Embrace is grace, and grace is gamble, always. There is a risk, is there not, in embracing the enemy? He goes on to say, as an expression of the will to embrace the enemy, the cross is no doubt a scandal in a world suffused with hostility. We instinctively reach for a shield and a sword. But the cross offers us outstretched arms and a naked body with a pierced side. We feel we need the cunning wisdom of serpents with our enemies, but the cross invites us to the foolishness of the innocent doves. There is risk involved in embracing the enemy when you seek reconciliation with other people. 
But I would say a fifth thing is to listen or to speak. When you go to reconcile with someone that you have a broken relationship with, go with your ears open. Listen to that person. Listen to what they have to say. What, what is the problem here? What have I done? Or sometimes it means speaking. It is saying, listen, I want you to know how you've hurt me. I want you to know because I want us to reconcile. But before we can do that, I want you to know how you have hurt me. And the consequences of your actions in my life and in, in my family's life or in, in my world. This is what you have done. It is pointing those things out. Sometimes it is listening or it is speaking. Sometimes it is seeking forgiveness from someone else. Another step is to allow space for them. Uh, Miroslav Volf says, The open arms of Christ on the cross are a sign that God does not want to be a God without the other. God doesn't want to be a God without us, without humanity, and suffers humanity's violence in order to embrace it. So all this points back to the cross, doesn't it? It is a cruciformed vulnerability. What we see happening there on the cross is so important. Yes, it is ugly. Yes, it is violent. And we ask, what was God doing on the cross? Hmm. God was suffering on the cross. God was reconciling on the cross. God was embracing sinful humanity upon the cross. Really, God was making space for us through the cross. And Volf says, what does this imply for our social covenants? Well, it implies a lot. It shows us how we are to operate in this world. At the heart of the cross is Christ's stance of not letting the other remain an enemy and of creating space in Himself for the offender to come in. It is difficult for us to do that. It is difficult for us to let God work in that space. But this is the work that Jesus has called us to do as a part of the kingdom of heaven. This is the kind of work that transforms the world. Amen. What does the world do? The world picks up the spear and the sword and the shield and increases violence toward the other. And that violence begets more violence. And all of a sudden, we are all blind, right? And yet God says there is a better way. I want to close with a story about a movie. You might have seen this movie. It's called The Straight Story. And it is based on a true story and chronicles the pilgrimage of a 73-year-old man who uh, set out to mend a broken relationship with his brother. His brother, whom he hasn't seen or spoken to in over 10 years. His name is Alvin Strait, which is where the movie gets its name. And if you remember seeing this, it was played by uh, Richard uh, Farnsworth. Uh, he lives in, in Lawrence, Iowa. And as he lives there, uh, he in this movie you see where he loses his driver's license because of his impaired vision. So he's not, he's not supposed to be driving. Uh, when a call comes to him indicating that his Lyle, his estranged brother, uh, has had a stroke and is very ill, Alvin determines to find a way to visit his brother and to make things right. He realizes 
that he needs to do this. He realizes the urgency of it, not knowing how much longer his brother will live. His only solution, since he is not able to drive, uh, or at least since he doesn't have a car, is to hitch a makeshift trailer to his 1966 John Deere riding lawnmower. <laughs> right? And he sets out on a 500-mile trip that will take him in excess of six weeks driving this lawn tractor. Uh, my son says, no, Dad, that's not a mower. It's a lawn tractor. Okay, it's a lawn tractor. And he sets out to do this. takes him six weeks. He camps out in fields and in backyards made available by very hospitable people that he meets along the way. Alvin Strait slowly but surely makes his way toward his destination. After crossing the Mississippi River and entering into Wisconsin, Alvin camps out in a church cemetery right there between tombstones. The pastor of the adjoining church sees Alvin from his office and he, he recognizes there's this homeless guy that's out in the cemetery and he has pity on him. He brings him a plate of hot meatloaf and mashed potatoes. And so a conversation ensues between the pastor and, 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 and Alvin. He says, I can't help but notice your rather unlikely mode of transportation as he eyes the, the riding mower. Alvin makes mention of his brother who lives in the area, and the pastor recalls having met a man by that name while out making hospital visits, but he admits that he didn't recall the man ever talking about another family member. He just thought he was there with no family at all. And so Alvin says, neither one of us has had a brother for quite some time. Lyle and I grew up as close as brothers could be. We were raised in Moorhead, Minnesota. We worked hard. Me and Lyle would, would make games out of our chores. He and I used to sleep out in the yard most every summer night, he says. We, walked, uh, we talked to each other till we went to sleep. It made our trials seem a little smaller every day. We pretty much talked each other through growing up, he says. The pastor asked, well, whatever happened? between the two of you. Alvin's eyes teared up as he explains. He says, the story is as old as Cain and Abel. Anger, vanity. Mix that together with liquor and you've got two brothers who haven't spoken in 10 years. Alvin's manner and voice indicates the depth which he is grieving, the barrier that exists between the two of them. And he adds, whatever it was that made me and Lyle so mad, it doesn't matter anymore. I want to make peace and sit with him and look up at the stars like we used to. He recognizes that he is not complete without his brother. He recognizes that until uh, he is able to reconcile with his brother, he will never be whole again. He'll never be able to look up at the stars in the same way. And I think what Jesus speaks about here in his Sermon on the Mount leads us to wonder this morning something very similar. Are we really who God has called us to be? Are we really completely living in the fullness of who we are to be if we are not reconciled with our brother or our sister? I wonder what we're leaving untended back home. I wonder what we are willing to drop everything to go and take care of at work, in our relationships, in our neighborhoods, in our world? Are we willing to hear those words and do them? Go and be reconciled. Let us pray.